Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church in North Well, I, I just finished today listening to a program, almost an hour, hour and a half, that a colleague of mine did on Spiral Dynamics. Mm. Oh, you told you were telling me about that podcast or program, rather. And we can talk maybe a little bit about Spiral Dynamics because people who are at different levels of development really do have a vested interest in how they defend their territory. Mm-hmm. And it's with an understanding of these developmental levels that we can see why there are people who are really strict law and order advocates and there are people who um, label themselves as much more progressive. People like we talked about last Sunday who have a worldview of capitalism feel like that if you don't earn your place in the society that you're probably not motivated, you're lazy, uh, you deserve what's coming to you. And then there are worldviews that are held by people like <clears throat> a friend of mine who lives in Switzerland, and they're very socialistic there and believe that everybody should take care of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, so spiral dynamics is just another way of understanding how people can embrace with enthusiasm the various worldviews that, that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I do want this Sunday to go back, even though people have heard it before and talked some about um, what Richard Rohr calls the cosmic egg. Yeah. But I might call, I, I might work a couple of other things um, in there as well. I, and I don't know if this makes sense to you or not, but it seems to me that the people who... Um, are able to occupy a a pacifist point of view mm-hmm. are people who uh, are content um, with who they are and and have no need to hit back. I don't know if I can make that connection by Sunday or not, but um, it, it it makes sense to me that some of the people like Nelson Mandela and Rosa Parks. Um, were people who were able just to stand their ground without any need to hit back to prove themselves, but they, they, they knew who they were and they knew it solidly enough to stand unmoved, if that makes sense. You know what all three of the people that you just named had in common? They all had, wait for it a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> I should mention that sometime. Yeah. I'm positive of that though, you know, cause the nonviolent um, protests, it took, they practiced, they practiced with their full bodies. They practiced through, um, you know, the student nonviolent violent coordinating committee started as a religious movement. So they practiced through prayer and meditation. They practiced after Martin Luther King did his work with, Thich Nhat Hanh and was motivated by Gandhi and 
you know, Rosa Parks didn't just one day decide not to sit in the back of the bus. She too was part of practicing. Right. Um, and Mandela cultivated some different way of thinking through years of hardship. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was put to hard labor and when he was first imprisoned mm-hmm. and how he, I, I, it's been a while since I've read his autobiography, but I recall him talking about the transformation from anger to love for him. And none of that happens just because you're born mm-hmm. the Buddha. <laughs> you know? And part of it, and I mean, I, I'm laughing, but it's also um, interesting, as you say, like pacifism is my theoretical philosophy on the world. Mm. And the two things that I think move me to violence would be if someone harmed my children or fear of something happening to my children, which even if it's self-inflicted, I'm, I'm curious how quickly fear turns to anger. Um, Mm -hmm. When a child of mine does something impulsive that um, he gets hurt or he is about to hurt himself and I try to stop it. Um, the, the, the impulse of fear turns very quickly to anger, which comes out as a reprimand. What were you thinking? Right. So, which is not exactly a nonviolent response when someone's just been hurt, but it's such an interesting parallel, how closely fear and anger Mm -hmm. are related. You know, I also have been thinking about, I think I mentioned this to you, um, that one of the things that both concerns and frightens me about American culture at the moment mm-hmm. is that it seems that, and, and it's so difficult to say this without sounding so judgmental and partisan, and I don't mean to be that way, but it seems to me that we are suffering from a lack of character at the highest levels of our government and public life. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been so individualized that mm-hmm. the bottom line, meaning the market, how things are going market-wise and that sort of thing, is so important that it's becoming more and more um, visible that it doesn't really matter what it takes to get there as long as I can ensure that my bottom line is safe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly this conflation of democracy with capitalism. It's so much so that I personally can't tell the two apart. And, and uh, again, this is, this is sounding very partisan, but our president once said that he could stand in the middle of Times Square and shoot somebody and get away with it. Mm-hmm. And I've come to believe that that may be true. Right. And because that's what he has been doing in terms of so many things like the COVID responses and not wearing masks and that right. sort of thing. And the people who support him are saying, okay, brother, that's just fine. Yeah. He's I'm essentially flipping the bird at any kind of um, rule. And this, and that represents to me, this, this can be said without, without being attached to a particular party, but it represents to me our over-attachment to individualism. And, you know, America, 
as, it, as we know it, was founded upon this principle of individualism, individual freedom. We, of course, know that if we were to look at those documents, that what was meant was individual freedom for white males. Um, the Native Americans were not free to continue their path of life. Africans were not free. They were brought here enslaved, um, and women were not free. But, but we still prize individualism. And I've been thinking lately, and I feel a bit vulnerable putting this out here because I haven't fleshed this thought out, but we've got these sort of three habituated patterns in America, each of which might be said to be equally indigenous to America. Um, one from Native Americans, from indigenous Americans is the idea of reciprocity, which we both just read a lot about in braiding sweetgrass, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an idea that's actually indigenous to America is the idea of reciprocity. Two, the idea of individualism brought by European colonizers um, upon which our founding documents were founded, our rules, etc. And three, Equally a part of founding modern America were enslaved Africans because they too have been here as long as European colonizers have. Um, there is an aspect of resilience, an aspect of, um, of creativity as well. So the question I'm toying with, and, and I'm willing to have pushback on that idea that I just put out, because I don't think we can ascribe those characteristics only to each of the groups I just named. I just think each of those groups are particularly interesting to the founding of, to, to American culture. And I wonder what it would be like if we could braid together reciprocity with individualism, because there are positive aspects of individualism with resilience and creativity. You know, when you talked about the reciprocity part. <clears throat> I remember when we were in Alaska several years ago, we spent time with a Native American man who um, explained to us the Native American tradition of potlatch. And of course, when the colonizers or first Americans tried to get Indians assimilated, they made the potlatch illegal. But it was the Native Americans' form of social security. Mm -hmm. And it was something that went, you know, way back to mm -hmm. the beginning of their tribal identity. And it's very, very reciprocal and uh, very, very misunderstood. I think that when, as Eugene Peterson has translated this particular beatitude, we actually begin to move into the territory of knowing who we are. And we are who we are in this field of sacred energy that some people refer to as God. I, I, I learned this from Richard Orr maybe 25 years ago. He was the first one I heard say, we are who we are in God, no more, no less. Mm. And if you really reflect on that mm. by having a spiritual practice that allows you to reflect on it, you um, begin to understand that, that you are there 
saying that as an individual, but you have absolutely been divinely robbed of the ability to deny that identity to any other human being. Yeah. And that I think is where so many um, models of development are based on individual development. Right. Um, And I think what we're missing in a model of development is where individual development intersects with collective identity intersects with communal belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, that that there, there is something in the hero's journey about the return, right? And in, in the return, you don't just return back to your own sort of island of existence. You return, the hope is, and Francis Weller talks about this a lot, is that you return to a welcoming committee. You return to the arms of those who who reared you, who love you, who wanted to see you through. And that is an aspect of, you know, as we both have been through some psychology training, right? And in all these models of psychological development, it's focused on the individual, not on the return. And it isn't until a very old age that, gener- that you know, Erickson talks about generativity or legacy, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think built into our models of development at a much earlier age, we need to be talking to our children about reciprocity and, mm-hmm. and being part of community and being held in that community. Mm-hmm. Well, it goes back for me to the idea, and I'm supporting what you're saying right now. Um, the, the set of interviews that was done with, um, uh, the Dalai Lama and Desmond mm-hmm. Tutu, and they're collected in a book called The Book of Joy, uh, which, by the way, if is a wonderful book, and it is is filled with an with appendices um, that have all these exercises that one could adapt to or include in spiritual practice to help one have the identity of being who one is in God. Now, the Dalai Lama wouldn't use that phrase, of course. Desmond Tutu would, and then they'd mm-hmm. laugh at each other about their equal heresies. Um, <laughs> but their, their conclusion in that book, and it's so spot on for me, is that the solution for what ails us is education. And I'm not talking about education in um, the humanities than science and that, although I think that's very, very important. But it's the education that hones in on just exactly what you're <clears throat> talking about right now. It's the education that, that goes back to this first axial age when there was this evolution of right religion that came on the scene that said, you are to treat other people like you yourself want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that's the education that our children need. Yeah. Um, but what we have um, apparently in our culture right now is something that's very opposite of that. I read an editorial today. I got my new issue of the week. I'm very high on that magazine because it, it, it reports stories from all sides of the spectrum. The Editorial staff of the week, I think, is probably on the left side of things. Mm -hmm. I think they're very progressive. 
but they also try to be very fair mm -hmm. in their reporting. And the, the editorial staff take our turns writing the editorials. And um, the, the guy who wrote the one for this week, you familiar with this magazine? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but mostly so it, because you talk about it so often and have sent me articles. I don't receive it myself. Okay. Yeah. Um, all the articles are like a, a very brief, half a page, uh, no longer than a page. So it's easy to read and get up on the news and that sort of thing. And the guy who wrote the editorial this week said, everybody who's ever seen a Western knows a movie, the Western, mm -hmm. you know, Western, yeah. that if there are guns brought on the scene, that sooner or later they're going to be used. Mm -hmm. And so this 17-year-old kid who took a gun to Wisconsin, you could almost predict when he walked down the street what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that young man suffered a serious lack of moral education. Mm -hmm. There is something to be said for our individual identity for sure. There is something to be said for how, but and our individual identity is not separate from the culture in which we are raised. So if we're raised in a Western culture, we're gonna behave like a Western culture. If we're raised in an individualistic society, we're gonna operate in, as an individual. And um, one of, I, I think I said this when we were talking with Natalie Negrete, um, one of the first weeks of teaching online, um, I was so struck when I was in Bolivia and how collaborative the community we were in was, you know, um, that just a healthy dose of everybody is simultaneously holding someone else's hand while giving another hand out. When we have an overabundance of, um, of reciprocity, when we have an overabundance of giving out, then in some ways the self is lost, right? The individual is lost. So there's a shadow to all of this, right? If we if we if we over rely on um, giving out, we lose the self. If we over rely on the self, we lose the get ability to give out. If we are over reliant upon resilience and survival, it means we're operating out of trauma all the time because resilience is a byproduct of trauma, right? Um, I'm just toying with these ideas out loud, but. There's, there's so, and, and, I'm, and there's a lot that's sort of frustrating me this week because, you know, we're starting online school. Online school is trying to do business as usual in a world that is not business as usual right now. Um, and um, we, we are trying to do things the same way they always were when maybe it's a time to actually change and be a little more dynamic in our approach to mm -hmm. kids. Like there's so much that could be done right now with kids' social emotional well-being with um, how to build community in an odd time and an unreal time and a time out of time, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, my, my point is, is that we don't have a balanced approach to this, to, with, with how to braid the interdependence with independence, with resilience and creativity. Um, I've not seen a healthy approach to that. I have seen people rise up in little ways of, in the thread of history that say, ah, here's the way to do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that could be a spiritual teaching that we stick with for the rest of our lives. If that was the only spiritual teaching we had to wrestle with for the rest of our lives, it would be enough. It would be. So I can give you a model of it. Mm-hmm. 
it's going to sound um, somewhat erotic. Go for it. <laughs> but the the model is healthy lovemaking, mm. not having sex, mm-hmm. but two individuals who are very much individuals mm-hmm. who come together for the purpose of making something between them that one of them cannot do by him or herself. Mm-hmm. And it's a... Uh, a combination of paying incredible attention to yourself and both to your partner at the same time. And it, and it does create something between the two of a bonding and a growing sense of intimacy and mutuality and trust, reciprocity, joy, that, um, that's a good model of, you know, we need to make love more. Why is this conversation about love making, not just sex, but love making, so left out of Western Christian teaching. What do you mean? I just feel like it's so taboo. You know, this idea, anytime we start to talk about carnality, and and I know we're not talking about sex, that's not what I'm saying, but uh, I mean, the body, anytime we start to talk about the body as a source of love, the body as a, as a material aspect of love, it, there's, it's, it's especially as a woman, I, I learned that there's a certain amount of shame that gets infused in that. I can't put my hands on this right now, but I know that in one of his books, Richard Rohr, uh, and people are going to get sick and tired of me quoting him, but Richard Rohr talks about the um, the joy and the mutuality and the individuality that is involved when two lovers come together and begin to either undress themselves or each other as a part of this getting to know one another better. Mm. And he talks about what incredible trust that not only takes, but also what it builds between two people. And maybe you're right, maybe we need more uh, venues and avenues to talk about the importance of this, because um, it's at the heart of, it's at the heart of all spiritual teaching. Mm -hmm. Love Mm -hmm. is, love your neighbor, love your neighbor Mm -hmm. as you love yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can use that a model of sexual intimacy as a metaphor for how we get to to know one another. I, I you know, I, I do a lot of work with people who have troubled relationships. And, and a, a lot of people, when they come to me, and you've heard me say this before, they will, they will say that the trouble in their relationship is that they don't communicate well and my response is yes you do Mm -hmm. um it's impossible not to communicate what maybe you don't know how to do is to talk and the dictionary definition of talking is social intercourse oh that's beautiful and it's a way that we have of moving back and forth into another person's reality but not losing our own in the process i think that's important thing. You've been such a great voice for me um, when I think about being, staying present in conflict, for example. Um, The idea that we want to leave with both people's integrity intact. Um, 
I think you've called it emotional judo. I hear what you're saying, but here's what I'm saying. I hear what you're saying, but here's what I'm saying. And, um, and maybe the operative word is not, but here's what I'm saying. It's, and here's what I'm saying. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that those two things are so tricky for us. So we have kind of learned this like mealy, I want to say like white bread kind of version of, of uh, living passionately. Uh, in other words, I, I think we've kind of left the passion out of living because conflict is full of passion. Lovemaking is full of passion. Those two things are not separate in a single relationship, right? In a single healthy relationship, I would say. And so to be in healthy relationship with anything, we have to learn how to do conflict well and how to do love well. Two things that are left out of our, I would say our, our religious upbringing, it's at least in my case, and for sure, our educational upbringing. And we're taught not to be very passionate. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of, in terms of sex, mm-hmm. we're just taught not to have it. Like that's, you know, <laughs> so there's no healthy discourse around yeah, How and, do and I, I think well? that one of the reasons in American culture, and I, I'm not, you, you mentioned the Bolivian culture. I, I'm not expert enough on other cultures to comment on this, yeah. but I think that what I'm about to say goes true in spades for American culture. We are blocked in our passionate intercourse with each other because we are taught to compare and compete. And I'm not being sexist. My experience is that women are more into comparison than men are. I know men do it, but men are more into competition than women are. And uh, again, I know that those are not firm lines. Well, they're both aspects of competition. Comparison is a kind of competing with. Right. And in competition in terms of sport or business is also a kind of comparison. So here's a metaphor that I will offer you for you to think about. Everybody listening to this podcast is familiar with computer icons. Mm -hmm. We know what they are. We know how they're used and, and we're familiar with them. When I say a word that represents something that we both, no. An icon pops up in our brain that registers that word. For example, if I say the word dog, you have a dog icon, yes, and I have a dog icon, and probably everybody listening to this has a dog icon. Right. If we could take all those icons out and put them on the table, we could be curious about them Mm -hmm. we could be well how did you get that one and um you you have an icon that you're afraid of or you have an icon that brings you joy or brings you sadness or whatever tell me about that how did that happen in you uh and we can we can verify that we're making love now because we're sharing icons and we're talking about icons and how we got the one that we did but in american culture 
we immediately judge our icons as either not being good enough or being better than somebody else's or I need to go get a better icon. or We don't take time simply to be curious and say, how did that happen? How did you get in that position? Um, how did how did you grow that way? Tell me your story about that. Yeah. We don't do that because it's not efficient. Yeah. So maybe you're pointing at this sort of prizing of efficiency above so many other things. Prizing of uh, you know efficiency gets us to the bottom line quicker. <laughs> um, it's not process oriented, and that I you know this this sort of fear of process is I think one of the things that has kept us healing, for example, kept us from healing from racial trauma. The, the fear of process, the fear of, uh, of, of hearing stories. We want to get to the end, to the result, to the conclusion much faster instead of going through the process of healing, which involves vulnerability, involves just, I think we said it last week, palms out and open as opposed to clenched and fixed. A number of years ago, and by a number of years ago, I think I'm maybe 25 years ago. I was in a bookshop and um, I saw a copy of a book. I picked it up and I read just the first few pages. We had enough to know I want to buy a copy of this book. So I bought it and brought it home. And I began to recommend that book to everybody I ran into. And the book was a book by Stephen Glenn and Jane Nelson called Raising Self-Reliant Children in a Self-Indulgent World. Mm. I think that book is still in print. It's gone through a number of revisions. And sadly, the last time I saw it, it felt like to me that it had been kind of dumbed down. Mm. But it had, it, and still has, really, 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 really good content about prizing effectiveness over efficiency, mm -hmm. particularly in parenting, mm. about not making assumptions, taking time to explore the meaning of somebody, uh, what somebody means about something. And after I read that book, I had an opportunity to attend a workshop with Stephen Glenn. Mm. He told a story about this boy who was in the hospital. Mm. He had almost killed himself because he had used a sink auger. You know what that is? Yep. Yeah. To try to take out his tonsils. Mm -hmm. He'd overheard his parents talking about their concern about not having enough money to pay the doctor and hospital bill because he was going to have to have his tonsils out. And he decided to remove them himself. And in the process, of course, almost killed himself. Mm -hmm. And he was in the hospital and recovering, and his mother was sitting with him. And periodically, she would tend to him and say, Johnny, that was just so silly. What he did was so silly. And he would say, no, it wasn't. And, and finally, she snapped to her training with Stephen Glenn and decided that the next time that he said that, she was going to explore the meaning behind why he would say no, it wasn't. So she said it again at some point. That was just so silly what you did. And he said, no, it wasn't. And she said, Johnny, why do you say that? And he said, well, when I do silly things, people laugh. Mm. And nobody laughed about this. Mm -hmm. It wasn't silly. Mm -hmm. 
it just took a little time to figure that out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Again, process, you know, that's, have you ever read Alfred North Whitehead, the process philosopher? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we find meaning in the process, literally, mm-hmm. you know, our, our, we, we find meaning by going through the process of understanding. And one of the things you said, I'm going to get the quote wrong um, exactly, but there is no God who can exist with only himself. <laughs> in right. other words, God too is a process. And if, if sacred mystery, life itself, um, the idea of love that we maybe the most important thing of the most important spiritual teaching treat others as you treat yourself is that it, it requires relationship. God cannot exist on its own. Love cannot happen on its own process cannot happen for sure. We can go through deeper levels of internal understanding, but I want to go out on a limb and say most of the things that we as people agonize over um, worry about have often to do with our, with a relationship to something else. Oh, I said that wrong. I wish I had said it, you know, differently, mm-hmm. or I wish it in, at least that's true for me, that those mm-hmm. are the things I lose sleep over is an impact. I think I might've had or how I wish I had had a different impact. You know, you just realize and thinking about Whitehead and maybe his gift to the thinking world was that it is all just process. And once we can sort of settle into that, we might be open to more possibilities. Um, Process doesn't have a fixed end. And sadly, what we're talking about scares half the people on the planet to death because people want their understandings of what is true to stay nailed down. Mm And don't you dare tell me that God is a process. Right. God is unchanging, immortal, you know. Yeah. But I I remember when I first got introduced to process theology back in the 60s. -hmm. My response was, wow, this is exciting. (laughs) And everybody else, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people would, oh, you can't do that. You can't go there. Yeah. What are you trying to tell me? God changes. I love the idea that God changes. Like, thank God that God changes. You know, this Aristotelian idea of the unmoved mover. It, it's, it, it seems rather thin and flimsy to me. If God is an unmoved mover, then that means that all of us are static, that life mm-hmm. is static. And um, I'm so thankful for the ways that maybe the core of my personality feels intact from the time I was a small child, certain things remain um, interesting or exciting to me. Certain ways of expression remain true to me, but I'm certainly not the same person I was when I was a child. You know, I mean, this, that's where these theories of development really do help, right? Is that they, they put us too in this non-static dynamic um, framework. If they're done well, it's becoming a fuller version of ourself. But many of them also get too trapped in binary thinking too. You're either stuck or you're moving on. You're either in um, shame or you're in 
autonomy, you know? <laughs> so I, I think those are so, that it, it, it is interesting that these theories of development do help us see that we can grow. It also helps us see that there is a lot of plasticity in life, but they can be very binary. I, you know, I think that was one of the, the first things I remember when we first did the Enneagram uh, tool and sort of finding out what our type was. Josh's resistance to it was, I don't want to be put in a box. I don't want to be either this or that. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I think that that perception of the Enneagram is also a very Western way of thinking. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to be a six. I don't want to be based in fear. But what I missed when I first got that sort of Enneagram picture was there's a whole process of becoming. There's a whole process of becoming not only the sort of actualized six, but kind of dancing around all the numbers of the Enneagram because we hold aspects of each. Now, rather than putting you in a box, the Enneagram actually shows you a way to expand your understanding of who you are and possibilities of being in the world. Now, you're a mother and I'm a dad. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you that my children came into the world Mm -hmm. with different personalities Mm -hmm. and they've kept them pretty much all their lives. They're not going to change your basic personality, but I've also watched them and, and myself as well, just kind of, you know, change, blossom, grow. Yeah. This is something that fascinates me so much to, you know, I, even when I was a little kid had this, kind of excitement about progressive ideas and openness and my brother same parent same family rigid as could be yeah yeah I relate to that I mean just it's so interesting how two of us can come out in very different ways within the same context and you know I and and we've learned so much more about the impact of epigenetics the impact of um, trauma even of one to two to three generations before, how that can impact mm-hmm. the outcome of a fetus and therefore of our personality. So there's so many micro levels that impact our personality that it's impossible to say there's just this answer or that answer. I remember, so I used to teach AP psychology to high school students and I had a young woman in my class who was a refugee from Afghanistan I mean, yeah, she and her family lost every male in their family, uncles, their father, um, to the Taliban, to murder. And their father was uh, an intellectual. Uh, The only living male in their family when they were able to get out was the brother, um, who is just a beautiful soul. I taught him also. But um, I became particularly close to the middle daughter. And she was in my class when I was teaching these the theories of development of Piaget and Erickson and she raised her hand and she was like none of this applies to me so what we also see is the limitation of these theories of development to a very western mindset right she did not see herself in that theory of development as an Afghani girl who grew up under Taliban rule who had suffered enormously who was a refugee who came to America and had to learn every custom all over again. But none of these modes of development spoke to her. And I just thought, well, that's a limiting factor. 
that we've designed in the West so many theories of development that don't incorporate experience beyond the one that we think we know. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, when you said that about the fact that until really relatively recently, theories of development were developed by white males about white males, and they didn't Mm -hmm. take in cultural Mm -hmm. diversity, uh, sexual diversity, and of course there's just been an explosion of that in the last number of years. Thank God that we are beginning to recognize the multicolored beauty of um, the human society. And I'm not talking about just racial differences, but sexual orientations and a variety of other things. Our icons are different. They're exciting and all of that. Yeah. Within the same racial category, our icons are different. You know, there's not, there is, we are not a monolith. No single race, no single culture is a monolith. Sure, there are certain traditions, aspects of character that may sort of broadly inform us. For example, as we've been talking about in America, this focus on individualism um, is broadly informative in our culture. I don't think anyone could walk away from America and not right. have been influenced by that. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, but, you know, I, I do also think about these other, these sort of, I want to say, forgotten or repressed modes of being that are also indigenous to America. So, again, to name reciprocity, that's, that's an indigenous, uh, literally an indigenous American idea, has been lost to modern culture. Um, so it begs the argument of like, or begs the question of what is American? What does it mean to be American if there is this reciprocity element that was here, but then it was sort of taken over by this individualism. Um, but there's also this resilience and liberatory aspect of, of being an American. What, what does it mean? Which is mm-hmm. it? <laughs> And that, and that's why I'm why I'm thinking about the braid, the braided element of um, those things. You talked about being in Bolivia when we mm-hmm. were in Bolivia, which is sometime after you were there. I had the same experiencing uh, of noticing that the people in the community where we lived and worked were among the happiest people I'd been with in a long time. And Sherry and I commented about that, and she said, I think one of the reasons that they are so happy is they have nothing left to lose, nothing else left to lose. They are thrown on the resources of being in a tightly knit community with each other and sharing everything that they have. And um, it was, I had this profound experience in working on the <clears throat> property where we were actually doing physical manual labor to, to deal to dig a foundation and build a concrete wall, making rebar, pouring concrete, doing, doing all that stuff. And I didn't have a hat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went into the little village next to the place where we were working to see if I could find one. 
anyway, somebody who was doing some translating for me said something about my needing a hat. And, and one of the guys who was married to one of the women uh, in the community where we were working uh, took the hat off his head and put it on mine. And he he didn't he didn't have the resources to do that. I tried to get him to give it back, to take it back. He wouldn't do it. And the woman who was doing the translating for me said it would be an honor for you to take it. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Right, that he was Jesus for you that day. You know, I mean, that's. I was just thinking in our in the pause of waiting for the phone to stop ringing was, um, because you said you know, these folks, so many of these folks had very little by our standards of American abundance, so to speak. And this last week's beatitude sort of filters into this week's beatitude, which is, you know, we talked about being blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear, um, being blessed when you've lost everything for then you can be filled by what matters. Right. And then that, then that leads right, right into this. Yeah. This is its own kind of development. And then when you realize that you can be filled by what most matters and not by the things you thought were important, you become content with just who you are. <laughs> yeah. Which is not to say that everyone we met and knew, it's so easy to become idealistic or nostalgic about other cultures and the way they present to us as visitors. Um, and who knows what they're like when they leave our presence, you know? Um, so you, you know that I, I love to play with um, words and phrases and titles of talks. Uh -huh. And having given uh -huh. so many talks in ordinary life over, I mean, for a long time now, hard to come up with new titles. But I just thought of one for Sunday. Owning what okay. can't be bought. Yeah. yeah. So I want to know before yeah. we quit, do yeah. I have time to give a commercial for Thursday night? Will that still be effective? Oh, yeah. Will this go out in time? Sure, yeah. So this Thursday night, 7 yeah. o'clock Central Time, we are having a free webinar with Michael Morewood. And I keep telling people that if you go on YouTube and you watch the presentation that Michael did when he was here last year, I guarantee you, you will be motivated to register. The, Webinar is free, but you do have to register in order to get a link to the, the webinar. And as we get closer to it, I'm getting more mm -hmm. excited about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think he's wonderful, and it'll be great to hear from him Thursday. He, he's the guy who, who really um, gave to me the notion of asking people the question, tell me what you're asking me to imagine with. Yeah. And then we get into these religious theological yeah. categories. I'd like to ask yeah. us in closing of this podcast is tell me what to imagine when you speak of love. I um, ha have a friend whose picture I keep up here uh, stuck to my desk where I can see him. And the title of the picture, it's been given a title called, and it's called Donald Soars, as in flies. My friend Donald Williamson, who actually, um, he and I used to play racquetball together mm -hmm. every week. We played racquetball together for 17 mm -hmm. years every week. 
unless one of us was sick or out of town. Donald performed mm. our marriage, Sherry and my marriage. We've traveled with them all over Ireland and Scotland and been to Seattle and California to visit them and they were there. Yeah. Donald died a few a few weeks ago um, of congestive heart failure. He was um, 87. Mm. And um, he said that that love is that energy in us which accepts another person exactly as they are. Makes no demands on them to be different, but just accepts them. And it is in that acceptance when we feel it, when we experience it, that we're empowered to change. I've got some work to do. But you know, I have a lot of images, you know, the woman I'm married to, mm -hmm. uh, my children, um, my dog is, my dog gives me a, a wonderful demonstration of absolute unconditional love every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dog is God spelled backward. I know. I mean, there's, there's a reason. <laughs> okay, kid. All right, adult. Adult. <laughs> I don't. I've keep, I need to break that habit, Holly. Hey, I'll take it. I'm still younger than you. Okay. <laughs> well, I will see you Thursday night. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I will see you Thursday night. All right. Talk bye. Bye. Bye.